0: Hi everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of Queer Science. My name is R, and I am your co-host, co-creator, and resident artist for the show.
1: And I'm Brie, your other co-host, editor, and co-creator of this podcast. Usually we'd have more to say in this intro, but today's episode is a long one, so let's get right to it. A few months ago, we spoke with Dr. Chris Hahn, professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, an amazing ecologist and professor who works in public science, communication and conservation, and environmental justice, and we talked about how those topics intersect in their project Spidey Censor.
0: Like me, Chris is also non-binary and biracial. Up until then, I had never met someone who shared my identity in STEM, so we discussed some of the joys and difficulties of navigating academia as a proud Black and queer person. Racism plays a big part of our conversation and motivation for why activism deserves a role in science. However, given recent legal verdicts and ongoing court cases, we wanted to give you this content warning of death and violence against Black people. It's still a good conversation, so stick around, just please be mindful of the topics. With that being said, let's get started with an introduction from our guest.
2: Hi, I'm, my name is Chris Hahn. Um, my pronouns are they, them, and theirs, and I am a Black non-binary environmental scientist and i do um let's see i grew up in the southwest um arizona and new mexico and so i i grew up with these great big landscapes and beautiful views and just fell in love with nature as a kid Um, and my parents were not outdoorsy but they liked the look of it so they like like to see the views through the glass um and so for me i always wanted to just go out and explore um but not being able to do that on my own i i just like you know pretended that i was exploring like all these you know this wilderness um and so i really just used my imagination to pretend like i was on these big grand adventures um in my backyard or in you know the boonies out behind my house um and um my parents did send me to biology camp when i was 10 um and that was it was like this retired couple that um just took kids on field trips around and like randomly got some animals to dissect (laughs) and so i i loved it and wanted to be a biologist ever since when i went off to uh to college i had my first um black teacher he was a black professor in and he taught um my my first intro class as a freshman and so i i got to um i got uh he took me under his wing and i was able to um you know learn what it meant to be a biologist and he gave me research experience and i got to do exactly what I dreamed of as a kid, which was go out to uh, a beautiful landscape. I got to go to Colorado and do research, um, do science and like, and hike and do like exactly the adventures that I had hoped. Uh, It was, it was really fun. I, um, I hiked, you know, 12,000 feet um, mountains and then uh, trapped yellow-bellied marmots and did studies and stuff. And it was, um, it was a blast. I had so much fun and I I did it for four summers um, and it, it completely uh, that was like that was absolutely my dream and I got to do it when I was you know 19.
0: So I've got a story for you. One night a teenager wanted a snack. There was a convenience store nearby, so he walked on over. It was cold and raining, so he pulled his hood up. He bought a bag of Skittles and a drink and decided to head home. He was on the phone with his girlfriend when a man in a truck started watching him. The boy continued towards his house, and the man followed him. The boy ran, and the man chased him, eventually catching him. They fought, neighbors reported hearing screams for help, and then a shot rang out. The phone call ended. The cries stopped. At 7.30 p.m. on February 26 of 2012, Trayvon Martin was declared dead. The man who shot Trayvon knew nothing about him besides his clothing and skin color. He mentioned his race multiple times to authorities and immediately assumed this unfamiliar Black person was, quote, up to no good on drugs or something. This story is an example of racial profiling and one of many, many cases where racial prejudice turned into fatal violence. People of color have experienced inequality, discrimination, and outright attempts at genocide in the United States for centuries. Racism isn't new, but the way the news and media talk about violence against marginalized communities has changed. Trayvon Martin's death quickly gained national coverage, and by March, it was more reported on than the presidential election. The masses mobilized, there were hundreds of protests around the country and we had to publicly face the way racism influences people's behavior and legislation. From one paranoid man with a gun to systemic problems of racial profiling, over-policing, and higher incarceration rates of Black and brown folks, racism is everywhere. Living in a world that vilifies your existence can be really overwhelming. It's also hard to see how you can make any difference in all that.
2: But then in grad school, I also felt just like really... um, uh, just being in uh, again in a, a mostly white space, um, it was it was hard to um, I don't know. It, it, it was hard to feel excited about the work all the time. Um, and especially, like that really came to a head when Trayvon Martin was killed that I was like, what am I doing out here in the forest, like collecting spiders? this is junk, I should not be here. I should be doing something uh, more useful. Um, and I think I, I could have left like science altogether at that point, um, but I was able to spend time. I was fortunately in Durham, North Carolina, which has been you know, the hub of civil rights since the sixties. Um, and that they've had a long standing tradition um, of direct action, and so th- I was able to to learn from organizers and, and take part of, of movements there, um, and that really kept me um, engaged um, by having this kind of side life, you know, of of being able to um, learn from cutie organizers um, and and just feel like I was doing something that mattered. Um, and you know, sometimes my research felt like it mattered, and a lot of times it didn't. And this, you know, was a good offset for that. And so for me, my my identities really came into play because you know I was learning, um, I, as I was learning from activists and learning, um, you know, I living in Durham. That was that was the first time that I had lived in a place um, where there were more Black people um like it was a majority black uh city is a majority black city and um i grew up you know in in places where there were high you know populations of natives and mexican americans and so it wasn't necessarily all white but um white was still a dominant culture um and like that, I, I still was in non-black areas and so for me um everything that I was learning about blackness was coming from non-black people um, and mostly coming from a, um, that was still a white narrative that was dominating that. Um, And so I had a lot to learn um, and I got to um, in my time there. And I was really able to understand more um, about how, how pervasive um, racism and sexism and homophobia—how they all just kind of weave together in more a systemic way—and um, uh, was really able to see that everywhere, including in the field of ecology, including in uh, my institution, including in um, my work. Um, and so, it, it just gave me, you know, my my own experiences, but but really also being able to take a few steps back and connecting with a broader picture um, was really helpful for me. I learned a lot to just, um, yeah, see how these things kind of happen in everyday um, instances and, and how they you know, connect to something bigger. Um, and, and I had to challenge that too. And, and really learned that like, you can challenge that. <laughs> um, yeah. You know.
0: And I was thinking about the, like, you grow up in an environment that's still a predominantly white narrative. Like, so I'm I'm biracial. So even, like, diversity is good, but there's a difference between being in a diverse group and seeing yourself in positions that you want to be in. So I kind of resonated with that, uh, The like, you can be in a, a diverse environment, but not necessarily see yourself represented in the way that... Like, you need to see yourself represented. Like, you see people that are similar to you, but they're not you. They don't have the same identity label. Um, so.
2: Yeah, and I, I think, too, like, every, everybody can be present, but not everybody has the same power. I'm, I'm also biracial, uh, black and white. And, um, you know, the way that, I noticed that we were different like that there was like this experience of like noticing that people would like stare at my family and stuff like that and they did it in like you know nice ways they like smile and be like you have a beautiful family Mm -hmm. but we'd be at like Peter Piper pizza it's like filled with beautiful families right like having a great time um but and so I uh, so it took me a little bit to like notice that like oh we're an interracial family and like that that's a thing and um and you know for my parents you know it was a um getting together in the 80s was you know it's still a big deal um and and that that the narrative was that that was enough um and um and I think a part of it too was like, it was important to be respectable and things like that, that still carried over Um, just my, that's how my dad was able to survive his life in a lot of ways um, was, um, I mean, he grew up, um, he was born in the 1930s. And so he grew up in um, the Jim Crow South where, white folks is crazy just straight up crazy and will turn on you in a second and so you have to play by these rules and very carefully um and and so he he did that and he learned to be exceptional and he was exceptional um and i remember like the first time like he played by the rules so much that when he told me like when he was a kid he would um, shine shoes Um, and then uh, but he would say that like yeah uh, but we'd have to run from the cops and like it was hard for me to imagine him doing something illegal and like why would you do something that was you know that was like that would get you in trouble with the cops like I, I didn't understand like that kind of relationship that just you know and especially at the same time watching charlie brown and seeing lemonade stands and things like that like that you know that like he was a young entrepreneur right but that was criminalized um because he was a young black kid um so those are i had i had a lot of things to like learn and unpack that weren't necessarily direct messages that took me a while to like figure out what was going on and and trace things Um, and And part of like, you know, I grew up in a place where there were lots, um, there were lots of native folks, there were lots of Mexican Americans. Um, and there but the story of colonization was really confusing to me. Like New Mexico as a has a um, when it was first colonized by Spain. And then uh, the United States later, um, and so, but you know that the story of all of that was not one of colonization that I learned, right? Just kind of like, oh, everybody's here, and and not why um, Mescalero Apache is a small reservation instead of you know a large part of the mountains in the state um, as it used to be, or that oh, it just so happens that there's um, an army base that's just south of that and that was there to to push natives out and restrict their land and so there were things that I like saw and they were part of everyday life but I didn't actually put the pieces together um, until much later and so like again diverse area but white dominant narrative um, and so I had to really step back uh, and it wasn't until I left to be able to put those pieces together too.
0: Yeah I was just like you had mentioned the whole like I, I really, the, the comment about like how it was presented as like a lovely, positive, nice message of like black people wanted rights and they got rights. And now everything's better. of Like that isn't like, it's it's an injustice within itself but it also doesn't help anyone in the present by erasing the conflict and the blood and the tears that were shed to get to where we are. So it's that I've, I'm very familiar with the whole like the civil rights were then, it went really well now everyone's equal and it's like that's not that's not the true story and to to depict it in a way that's it's erasure and it's also just it's not good for anyone so I really resonated with that whole like white narrative of like it's all peace love and happiness like it's it's and playing by the rules like that's another thing too of the like you have to be the exceptional like I don't know over the top like always good Everything that you do is how people will see black people like mm-hmm. like you become the token, even though you don't want to be. And so it's like how do you do yourself, but also how do you represent a community that these people don't really have an interaction with? like it's, yeah, it's a heavy role to play, and it's hard mm-hmm. to like discover it too, of like realizing like this is what I hold. like this is this is this is what's in like my pocket walking around and it gets heavy after a while. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Continuing our discussion on identity, we asked Chris what it's like to be out as a non-binary person in academic and STEM spaces. R and I are both young, out professionals, and we wanted to know more of the benefits and drawbacks there could be when we bring up our gender and sexuality in these spaces,
2: I came out um, as non-binary right before I moved to Baltimore, um, and so, you know, moving moving here was you know a chance for me to, um, you know, use these new pronouns and do that kind of stuff. And I, I remember standing up in orientation for like new faculty and being like, you know, my my voice was shaking. I was like. And my pronouns are they, them and theirs. <laughs> it's, like, it's been really, you know, staying up in front of a group of strangers and saying that for the first time um, out loud. Um, but I found, you know, people to be very supportive. And what I found too was that um, when I made declarations like that or when, you know, I had my, have my queer little haircut and do all the little things and wear my ties and do my stuff, um, that it it draws people. To me, you know, it, it draws people that are um, that are queer, that are uh, POC. That you know, it's um, it's a litmus test. You know, it it like by just being me, it's it it just acts as a very clear sign <laughs>
1: um,
2: of who I am and what I'm about. Um, and and so it it's made it easier, um, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, because I, I've been um, fortunate enough to actually have people around me that are um, that are really sweet and cool, and um, also queer, and all those things. So, um, and it, it's been also nice. Uh, I do this. Uh, I have to do this as a professor now when I teach classes, um, and so I get all kinds of students. Um, but uh, I have them. I put that information in my, in the syllabus and then I have a syllabus quiz and, you know, asking about like, what's Dr. Hahn's policy on late work? And, you know, they have to, right. put it there, you know, just like they can look it up. It's, 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 it's important that they, I know that, you know, and we know, but I, I put in a question of like, um, Dr. Hahn's pronouns are they, them, and theirs. Um, an example of how to use this in a sentence would be, um, or, you know, and then I have that as a multiple choice question. Um, of and so I I do that to explain clearly how pronouns work in terms of here's a sentence, choose the right one. Um, and uh, because I know a lot of my students, some of them know that stuff, some of them don't. Some of them speak other languages. Um, English is a second language, third, whatever. Um, and it brings me a lot of satisfaction to see people get that question correct. Um and I feel like that it's just how to like bring that into the forefront. Um it's important for me and it helps it helps that communication process and it also uh I feel like makes space for other people, other trans and non-binary folks. Um and and I have those students come up to me in class too um, and like or send them emails and stuff like that of Um, I'm sure feeling the same way that I did when I had my first Black professor, Uh, like, you're my first trans or non-binary professor, you're my first, you know. Um, And so that that feels good, um, that that's, that makes it easy to keep it going, um, just to have, you know, at least one person a semester, um, have that be really important for them.
1: LGBTQ students and professionals often face underrepresentation and discrimination in STEM fields. Published research and our own experiences prove this, and because of that, it can be difficult for many people to come out in higher education, especially those in teaching positions.
0: The first time a professor introduced themselves with pronouns, I was overwhelmed by my own relief and excitement. I didn't consider the challenges that instructor may have gone through. Coming out is a constant process. It's more than just a one and done deal. It's incredibly intimidating and very dangerous for a lot of folks.
1: Exactly, we completely respect that some people aren't able to come out. Representation and personal safety and well-being is a tricky balance for LGBTQ plus professionals to navigate.
2: Yeah, I mean, just to just to really appreciate that not everybody can be out, um, you know, and I think that's why. Um, That's why I feel like such a responsibility to do that because I I can and I have a lot of power. Um, And like, you know, my colleagues listen to me. They respect my opinion. Um, And um, like me being in a room, it really gives them an opportunity to confront what they don't know. And they can step up the plate or not, but they—it's—it's it's a constant, you know. That's a challenge. It's not something that they can ignore. Hmm. Um. And so, it, like, I like for instance, I, yeah, I got um, an email from a student who um, this semester who's non-binary and was, you know, appreciating me for. Um, you know having my pronouns out and says that you know you know they aren't they identify as non-binary but um aren't comfortable or like you know aren't in a safe place to be able to present in any sort of way or use the you know their pronouns publicly or things like that but you know just like small shout out i'm here and i see you yeah yeah Um, And then it's like, I'm going to go back into my little hidey hole.
1: (laughs) My little hidey hole. It's the little
2: meerkat, like, sticking its head out, like, Mm -hmm. oh, that's
0: what that is. And then going back in because it's safe. And, like, that's a completely valid way to live your, like, if that's what you have to do to make it through each day, that's, like, perfectly valid and appropriate. But it does, it is helpful to, like, see people who are living, maybe not, like, your dream life, but you see people who are you, they're professionals that are having a life that is successful even if it's not necessarily like successful success has many different definitions but to see someone who you admire like thriving or at least like being able to to function in a position of like power of like i don't know it's just representation in Mm -hmm. that in that regard of like hey look like that's someone like me like
1: yeah cool Exactly. Yeah,
0: I, I like I like that adjustment of like
2: thriving. Well, you know, functioning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. That's thriving. <laughs> with yeah. a little
0: too much pressure. Yeah, on yeah. existence.
2: Right, right, right. no, no, I, I agree. Um, but yeah, um, right. It's um. There's a. Yeah, it, it was just nice, you know, that people people need something while they're while they're, uh, to get through those stages too. Mm -hmm. You know, you need, I remember like, you know, seeing people with like fashion and style that I was actually drawn to. I just thought like, I, you know, for a long time, I just like, oh, I don't get fashion and I don't get style. I just, you know, bland and boring, but really it was like, I don't like any of the styles that I see. And Mm -hmm. then when I saw somebody with style that I was really drawn to, it was like, dang, like, (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, you no. Know, I didn't start, you know, wearing something different so much later, but you know, seeing it, you know, planting a seed. Mm-hmm. Like the fact
0: it exists yeah. is a big deal. Like, yeah, it's yeah. a big
2: deal. It's a big deal because people say that it doesn't exist or that it's shameful mm-hmm. to exist and all this other stuff. Like, I mean, yeah, it's like that was the biggest thing I think. Um, you know that. Um, you know, my my colleagues would you know would talk about you know as they're like they're learning about um, trans and non-binary issues and like learning language and stuff like that. You know, that like oh, I'm just I'm not used to this. This is new for me. And. I guarantee you it is not new for them. It is new to show someone respect that mm-hmm. is uh, trans or non-binary or gender yeah. non-conforming. Because I guarantee when you were growing up or in different areas, you've been laughing at movies that make fun of trans people all the time. And like, oh, that you know, I guarantee you know lots of language to describe this. And you know lots of things. And you've been doing that comfortably for a very long time. It's just the first time that you've actually had to do this in a... <clears throat> Um, in a respectful way in a way that in which I determine um, mm-hmm. and in a way that um, other trans and non-binary people have said that like this is the language that you use and you not know, that other trash um, so it's not to say that everybody's yeah uh, it's just people If that's the thing that they're not used to it's like oh I didn't know that people existed seriously out in the world like this mm-hmm. you know I thought they were just jokes yeah <laughs>
0: yeah it becomes less theoretical of like if this exists it's like no i'm here like i'm I'm mm-hmm. right in front of you like what yeah. you're saying affects me yeah
1: right and uh yeah i don't quite care if it's new for you <laughs>
2: yeah that too uh yeah and i i just I, I just bristle with that too it just in the um in the you know when people are have the assumptions that it's new mm-hmm. in general like this shit's old yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like being straight is new. <laughs> having having two genders is new.
1: Yes, um, it is. like
2: those things are are very are very new and have been very violently upheld. You had to beat people out of that for a very long time, um, and continue to do so. Uh, and so, why do you think that that's it's not new? It's just that you tried to snuff it out, and we still here, motherfucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Going back to your students a little bit, um, we were curious a little bit about how you teach um, science communication and how you teach future science communicators, um, and like the importance of that to you in the classes that you teach.
2: Yeah, I think it's really important for um, for folks in STEM to learn how to tell stories or to continue to tell stories, um, and that is um we 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 tend to um uh we tend to prioritize you know facts and you have to tell facts you should not elaborate things like that that ends up being what structures our language and how we you know (laughs) they don't even say like communicate they're like deliver information (laughs) um you know so it's and that you know one that that gives the false sense of objectivity which there's not um and um we don't have to pretend that that's there and two we lose the ability to connect with people and you know for issues in like conservation those are all people problems none of it's because animals are out of whack or species are out of whack. it's it, they're all people problems like all the threats to other species are, uh, can be, you know, it's all us and, uh, you know, word capitalism and imperialism, but us. Uh, and so how we, how we connect to other people is super important. And, and so those are skills that I try to, um, to keep in people and, um, and, and, Um, And still and and try to develop more Um, because uh, being effective in conservation, that's not just with facts and data. Um, You can't change anything with that. Um, People don't be like, oh, this is what's happening. You can clearly see without any data uh, that things are going extinct, that like all these things. but telling compelling stories can be really effective, um, and so learning how to recognize those stories um, and and really just to say that, like, you know, as as people, we're all making observations. We can use those same uh, skills that we have for science, which is, um, you know, observation, recording, all that kind of stuff. Uh, use that to tell stories uh, that can make as big of a difference and. Um as our as our data.
1: I have a follow-up question. What to you in science communication is a good story? Um, well, i I tend to really go for stories that
2: um, that uh, may connect people to uh, to conservation, which is what we're talking about, um, may connect people to conservation for different reasons than loving animals. Mm-hmm. right i i want something less obvious um and uh so you know i i liked uh so I, one of the things that i um used as um in one of my classes was um some interviews that i had done with folks in the borderlands so in in southern arizona um that did conservation for sky islands and so you know these are um rare habitats um that connects the entire um southwest and northern mexico to and it's an important very connected um uh, biome and we're building a wall through it. And so one of the most important things for conservation in the borderlands is immigration reform. Makes sense? Right? And so really understanding like how um like really that immigration is affecting um the the species there is really important and so like i i like stories that like that are intersectional um i like stories that are um that take complexity and can you know draw a nice thread right through everything like you know just um and I, I i like uh stories that can can flip something that you think you know right on its head and so i, I mm. encourage students to do that um in in you know in whatever ways that they they can it's it's hard right <laughs> um but it's it's all around us it, it just takes again looking at something maybe something that you've seen a, a bunch of times but looking at something in a different way and or talking to different people um and so those are the those are the skills that I'm trying to instill in people, because again, like for conservation, if you're talking to different people and you're able to get you know similar um, get a good narrative there, um, you can get allies for what you're trying to do.
0: Chris is also involved with various public science projects, including Spidey Sensor, which uses spiderwebs to monitor air quality.
1: Wait, what, did, what exactly is public science, Are?
0: Great question. So public science refers to any kind of scientific research that is open to anyone, regardless of their background or education. It's the same concept as citizen science, but many find the term citizen to be limiting. Using the word public just emphasizes that everyone has a role in science. You or me or some random stranger on the street can still participate in research. Oftentimes, it's non-experts that are needed the most to help find new scientific discoveries.
2: For me, this work is my response um, to, um, to feeling isolated within STEM. Uh, This is my opportunity to do uh, science communication, doing work beyond the ivory tower um, and doing science that's also rooted in grassroots organizing all at the same time. Um, And that, this is like, you know, I've been I went to NC State and so I, I learned about public science 10 years ago, um, starting up um, as a um, new graduate student, but had no idea how to actually design something myself and didn't know what kind of project that I would do. And um, I saw so many um, people doing the research that was really captivating people's imaginations. You know, people really liked an idea and wanted to learn this new science thing and participate in this new science because it was it was neat. It was it was something cool. Um, and I had no idea how I would do that, um, but just really liked the idea of it. Uh, and so, um, over time, I. Um, I helped people on their projects and, and did, yeah, just help people with all their other stuff. And, um, a few years ago, I read a paper, um, from this team in Poland doing like environmental engineering stuff. And they wrote a paper on how to, um, detect metal contamination, um, by, through spider webs, um. And effectively they did a bunch of they they published a few papers um and the process of it was so perfect because it it took a lot of the barriers out of even participating in public science out because you know you can measure air quality there's lots of projects that measure air quality Um, um A lot of them involve smartphones or sensors or some other added piece of technology that you know technology is getting better and things are getting cheaper but still low-cost sensors are like 200 bucks um or you know they can go up to you know easily thousands of dollars
0: i don't have a spare 200 dollars to spend on a sensor
2: (laughs) And, and so you know you that that's um that's a barrier for a lot of folks um, and particularly the ones that are likely have the largest burdens for that kind of contamination. Um, and so this is this is air quality monitoring for you know five bucks or less. You have to pay for postage. Um, and that's it. Um, and so um, and you know people can learn people can learn more about you know this the natural history of spiders. Part of the project is that you know you can't just collect any spider web. You have to you have to collect the spider web of a funnel weaver spider. And so, you know, for me, that like you can actually identify different spiders by their webs because they build distinctly different um, webs for different hunting strategies. You know, different families have different types of webs. Um, so people have to, but. That's not necessarily something that people notice um, but you know once you once you learn that, you kind of see it everywhere. Like, there's these spiders that you've been walking by that do no harm to you like they're completely neutral. that actually not completely neutral. They've been eating things that you don't like. <laughs> yeah um, that you know they're just around and so people can pay attention to them and hopefully without fear, they're not just always out there lurking. they're just you know just
0: chilling. Underappreciated arachnids, you know, they're right. just out there trying to like help everyone, and people are just like, "Ew, spider, squish." That's right.
2: That's right. Um, yeah. 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 And so I, yeah, so I, I like, I like those aspects of the, the work. I also like just that that feeling of, um, of how people feel uh about spiders, uh, and really pushing back against those those narratives of mm-hmm. um fear of spiders because um that's also very new um and not a common story like around the world
1: wait really yeah yeah um, i did not know that i sort of did okay. that but yeah okay. no i i'm like i want to hear <laughs> more about this yeah <laughs> okay well so lots of cultures have spiders
2: as um like revered animals Um, so, um, there are several creation stories that center spiders, um, in my culture, West Africa, there's a spider, God, Anansi. Um, and for that, uh, character, he is, um, he embodies, um, mischief, cleverness, um, and he's tiny. Uh, and yet he outwits his opponents, um, you know, using his wit. So he's, um, and his opponents are like tiger, you know, like giant, ferocious things that are that could actually cause harm and are actually dangerous. Um, so spiders cause very little harm, and they never have really caused harm around the world. Thinking about all the the species that are out there, spiders are not on the top ten. They're like. They're way low. And I'm like, actual harm that they could cause. Just thinking about like right now in this one place, dogs are way more harmful mm-hmm. mm, that's across true. the board. They kill more people. They bite more people. They like do, they cause way more harm, but we love them, right? So mm. it, it's not the actual harm, it's just our relationship with them. This is a new relationship that we've had. Uh, and that's a colonial aspect, in my opinion, because we kill things that we're afraid of. That is a colonial act. Um, so we've we've killed most top predators in the United States, um, and uh, most threatening things. Uh, the deal is to kill them and er- eradicate them. Uh, we do that now with spiders as like the last thing, because it's like like that's the we're not. We don't encounter many dangerous things. We're not used to that. Um, yeah. And so the, the spider ha- dares to still exist. Um, and and we are mad at it for existing in in our house. How dare you? Or in like where I actually like, have to see you. You're not doing anything, but you're just existing. Oh, that that's a completely like colonial like mindset and action, and it's not something that is again, common, because spiders are overall harmless and, uh, like, ridiculously harmless. Um, And people, again, told, like, um, lots of really positive stories about them, about their weaving abilities, that um, Cherokee tribes um, were able to design their baskets out of after watching um, orb weavers. And, you know, so, like, doing these different, like, there've been a lot of positive qualities. It's been drowned out, out of this monolithic. And it's just so everywhere. Every freaking movie or series
1: Yeah, has like, a big scary spider.
2: <laughs> has a big scary spider that's like completely, you know, whatever. So it's just, that's just the dominant narrative, but that's a really recent short history of scary spiders. Uh, and it, it's pretty rare. Um, but it's uh, pervasive. And so much so that people are like, oh, it's evolutionary that That we're afraid of spiders.
1: That's what I was going to ask, because I know I've heard a lot where people say it's an evolutionary trait to be afraid of snakes or whatever. Like I've certainly heard that one. And I like the assumption in my brain is that people associate that too with spiders. And so I thought that was really interesting because that was the first example that popped in my head is like, universally, every human in the world doesn't like snakes because our brains are pre-programmed by, and it's like, I was like, what? (laughs) Um, So it's interesting. Uh, so, so that,
2: that is a really great example, um, of people not being able to understand like their own, um, subjectivity,
1: Mm -hmm. right.
2: Of like, I am this way because this is just the way that I am formed and not because this is the environment that I'm in right now. Right. And again, using, um, using the discipline of evolution to, um, back up what they feel. Yeah. and, and like, I'm so rational that I would like millions of years of evolution uh, is, is like, this is, um, I'm the product of, of all these years of evolution. And that's why uh, I feel this way. And not because I feel this way because I'm scared and I see other people afraid. Like, yeah, that's not the most parsimonious, mm-hmm. uh, logical conclusion in, in any sort yeah. of way. Uh, but it, that's, that's what happens. Uh, so that's the. If I write a book, that's the one. I,
1: <laughs> I look, would read it. Yeah, yeah Arna. Yeah. I'm, like,
2: <laughs> I'm
0: fascinated by spiders, and uh, like working at the North Carolina Museum of uh, Natural Sciences for a bit. Like in one of the interactive labs, um, there's like there's several tarantulas on display, and like hissing cockroaches that they can interact with. And usually, the kids are like fine with it. Like if you're under the age of like seven or eight, mm-hmm. they're super excited about it. But it's the parents. They're like, ew, that's gross. Or like, don't touch them. They're dirty. And it's like, well, no, they're actually very clean. Like, it's just the environment that they tend to be in is full of toxins and mm-hmm. pollutants and other things that are really nasty. Like, the animals themselves are like very chill. The most a hissing cockroach is going to do to you is hiss. Like, mm-hmm. that's it. It's not going to fly in your face. It's not going to like jump at you. Like, it's it's they're just trying to exist and mm-hmm. you happen to be there. Like, unless you cause direct harm to it or immediately threaten it, it's just going to exist beside you. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. So it's, I've witnessed that whole thing of, like, humans. Well, I do think that there's some, like, evolutionary just, like, fear of being aware of your surroundings and trying to find patterns and, Mm -hmm. like, realizing which plants are bad and, like, which snakes are bad for you and stuff like that. But... Like, I, you mentioned snakes, and I can think of several stories in which snakes are, like, they're kind of sneaky, mm-hmm. but in the same way that a fox is sneaky, or mm-hmm. a coyote, or, I guess, a spider, in the way that it's just, like, that's a trait belonging to the animal, but it's not bad. Mm-hmm. So, it's, like, humans can be receptive to anything. It's just the culture that you're in. And Yeah. Like, I love spiders. I was looking around to see if there are any spiders. Like, I, I get scared by spiders, but just because they startle me like the animal itself like it could be like a caterpillar and i'd have the same reaction like i, I would like to say that spiders
1: are great roommates they when are. i when i lived in australia um, i lived in like the student housing and every day there was this little spider that would come out from behind this picture on the wall come he'd like run like six inches to the side of it and at first when i first saw him i was like oh my god it's a spider and then i just kind of like I, I don't know if i'm just like that extroverted that i was just enjoyed every like couple of hours when i would see him pop out and then he'd run back under the picture frame again and i was like he's my friend he's my roommate now <laughs> like we're buddies
0: that's also australia i would yeah. be i'd be concerned it was about a tiny any... one it
1: wasn't like a huntsman up okay. in the corner not so. the giant ones. <laughs> no it wasn't like... one of the big ones okay.
0: Because it's Australia, you never know. Even yeah. the plants once you did.
1: Yeah. I, if we were talking about like the Australian context, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I just, I think we we take
2: for granted what is, um, what's social and what's cultural, and and tend to, um, extrapolate that to like this is universal. This is, this is old. Um, and that I see that in so many things. In in spiders, we're talking about gender. We're talking about race, all these things, like it comes up over and over again in like pretty similar ways.
1: All right, we're near the end of the episode now. We did say this would be a long one. Now let's hear some final thoughts from Chris.
0: Before we close out this episode, we want to mention that Chris is working with a group of black ecologists to publish a blackout issue of various ecology journals. Their goal is to be published on Juneteenth of 2022, so keep an eye out next
2: summer. I'm just grateful now that I can do the research that I had hoped um, that I could, you know, where I was really able to you know, marry social justice along with ecology and conservation, and um, because they they have um, a place together, there's an importance where um, I see that by you know blending those those um, those disciplines, um, there are huge gaps in um, that that really open up um, that it has been unexplored. Um, and so like there's, um, and that can have like a, you know, theoretical impact for the field and also a, a practical impact for, um, for communities. And, and that's what I, what I hope to to do and continue. Um, and there's, there's just some, some pretty rad, um, black ecologists that are doing some, some work on that, that I'm excited to um, you know, call my peers and, and, and continue to kind of push the boundaries of our discipline for that.
1: What was the, um, you were working on an article today with them. Is that what you said? Do you know when that is likely going to be published? Where that sort of stuff?
2: Yeah, we're doing a, um, it, it'll be, um, a blackout issue of, um, Ecology, uh, Frontiers of Ecology, Ecological Monographs, and a few other like ESA journals. I think we got five of them, Um, but it, it'll be, uh, they'll be actually published. The goal is like um, Juneteenth of 2022. So next year. Um, and so we're trying to get all the articles written to submit for this summer so that we can get everything ready for publication to come out then. So it'll be a while, but uh it's cool because again i I was on a zoom call with i think there were like twelve of us, black ecologists working on cool, really different stuff, and in that one hour, I got more inspired in ecology than I'd had like it's just um, you know folks that have marginalized identities are more likely to do intersectional work and that those perspectives are really missing in the field. And so seeing how people are um, using their perspectives to really shine a light on what's missing is just really cool. It's stuff that I hadn't thought about and um, stuff that I'm into.
1: Regarding what we discussed in this episode, be sure to check out our show notes. A transcript of this episode can be found on our website at queerscience.show. If you like this episode, you can tell us why by tweeting at us at queer science. You can find us on Facebook as Queer Science or follow us on Instagram at queer_underscore_sci. The Queer Science team believes that educational content should be accessible to all, and we are a small team of 20-somethings working to bring this podcast to our audiences for free. If you like our work, consider giving the co-hosts a tip by supporting us at patreon.com queerscience. You can also donate to our GoFundMe, which allows for us to afford microphones, recording software, and website upkeep. We also have merch, too, featuring the Queer Science logo and more original designs by our co-host R. You can find out more by checking out our website at queerscience.show.